All right, y'all turn to um, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. So, before we start, let's review. Who wrote the Gospel of Luke? That's right. Who is Luke? That's right. Who's he writing to? And the Gentiles, that's right. Who is Theophilus? What do we know? He was important, that's right. That's right. He could have been a high-ranking government official. Most excellent is what Luke called him. What's the purpose of the book? Why did he write the gospel? Nobody. Yeah. Of the things that Theophilus had heard were true. And to, and to give a, a detailed account of the ministry of Christ. That's right. So, any questions? Comments? Criticisms? All right. Let's pray and go home. Short sermon today. No? <laughs> no. All right. This morning, what we're going to do is uh, we're going we're gonna to explore, and this could take a while. So, if y'all hope you don't have any plans this afternoon. Uh we're going to explore something that, that people that all, at all stages of, of their Christian walk, they've struggled with. This is a question of um, why didn't God make the evidence of himself clearer? You ever ask yourself that question? Why didn't God make the evidence of who he is, of himself, clearer? Here's what I mean. A lot of people believe in evolution, right? A lot of people believe in evolution over creation. And the question from Christians is, well, why didn't God make the evidence of his existence so clear that those other theories like evolution wouldn't hold up? That make sense? So why didn't he just just create our bodies in such a way as to when someone looked at the cells in our body, there was a little tag that said made by Jehovah? There'd be no doubt at that point. That, that we were created by God, right? There, there'd be no more questions. Where'd that cell come from? Well, right here, made by God, right? So, so why didn't he make make it clear? I don't know if y'all have ever heard of Bart Ehrman. Um, most of you may, may have heard of him. I don't know. Uh, he, he claims that the Bible, the Bible we have, he claims that it's corrupt. He claims that it's even been forged. Um so the question is, why didn't God make create everything in such a way that people like this guy wouldn't have any questions, or he wouldn't have an audience for those questions? You ever wondered? Have you ever asked those that question? I mean, I, I think you have. It's okay. I mean, I've asked those questions. I'm sure Buffy's asked them. Why hasn't God made the evidence for himself clearer? Why hasn't he made the evidence for himself clear? Why didn't he make it more undeniable? There's a, there's a writer, John Updike. This is what he said. He said, all this heaven storming you want to do, if God wanted his tracks discovered, wouldn't he have made them plainer? Why tuck them into the uh, odd bits of astronomy and nuclear physics? Why be so coy if you're the deity? If God can do whatever he wants, why not make himself more obvious. Why doesn't God speak from the sky on a daily basis? Like he did when Jesus was baptized and he said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Why does he do that more often? Why doesn't, when people like this Bart Ehrman guy start making the claims that they make, why didn't God, uh, or why doesn't like a 900 foot Jesus come down and say, he's wrong. Why? Have you ever not wondered that? I mean, and why do so many clearly smart people come up with different conclusions than, than we have about the Bible? And these people are clearly knowledgeable. They're clearly smart by the world standards. Why do they have different conclusions about Scripture than we do? I've heard some people ask the question about God from, from, from this different angle. They say, why isn't God more present when I need him? C.S. Lewis wrote this, and I'm going to quote it. He says, uh, here's what C.S. Lewis wrote in one of his books. He said, go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face. 
and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might as well be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seems so once. Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? I say a lot of us probably had those same questions. We all got hard, had hard times in our lives and we've struggled. Where's God? Where is he at? And and sometimes we've had them more than once, you know. We we've had those those questions often. And and it's something I don't hear and I've never really truly heard dealt with in church. Never heard it dealt with in church. But it's 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 really been a running theme throughout the Gospel of Luke. One of the things that happens repeatedly in Luke is Jesus seems to have several golden opportunities to reveal himself. Does he not? He has these opportunities uh, to, to, to end all the questions about who he is, but he doesn't do it. He repeatedly told people who, who, who've seen his power throughout this gospel to not say anything at all. Has he not? He, in Luke 4, he cast out a demon and he says, don't say anything. In Luke 8, he resurrects the little girl from the dead, and he says, let's keep it between us. Don't say anything. So if this whole thing is about everybody knowing Jesus' power, why is he doing that? Sometimes when, 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 even when we see Jesus push to perform a miracle to prove who he is, like, like when he's standing in front of Herod in Luke 23, he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it at all. He, he, he sometimes refused to even answer point blank, point blank questions about himself. And in, in Luke 8, he says the reason that he often spoke in parables was that so seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear. And they may not understand. In other words, he spoke in a way that kept some people confused. In Luke 13, Jesus says his kingdom was like a seed. Ultimately, it would grow to be a tree that covered the entire earth. But it was uh, it was starting out small, so small that you'd never imagine that it had the kind of power that it had. A seed, and what's a seed? It's something that, that is small, right? A seed's something that you can crush, you can eat it, you can throw it in the trash and forget about it. But all of, And all of this is what theologians for the last 2,000 years have called the hiddenness of God. The hiddenness of God. And in this chapter of Luke chapter 10, Jesus explains why he's behaved the way that he has. And I want us to kind of deal with it this morning. I've never personally myself heard a sermon about this. And maybe it's because I think a lot of times, as I thought about it, why I've never heard someone in church talk about this. I think we're scared to deal with the hard questions. Sometimes there's a lot of things that, that, that blow my mind, completely and totally blow my mind as I read Scripture and as I learn every week. There are things that, that shatter the beliefs that I thought I had. And, 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 and force me or, or, or challenge me to change those beliefs. And the moment we refuse to embrace uh, that as a possibility in our Christian walks, that's the very moments that our walks with Christ become stagnant. Meaning we can be wrong. And we have to be open to the fact that traditions can be wrong. Even though it's something we've always done in church or something we've always heard it can be wrong, right? We have to come to that realization. I mean, who in here has all the answers? If you have all the answers, raise your hand. Who in here thinks they have nothing left to learn about God? None of us. None of us. So let's step outside of the traditions and, and ask the tough questions of our faith. If we don't ask the tough questions, we're not going to get the right answers, right? So let's all stand if you're in Luke 10. Read our text, Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 21. Luke chapter 10, verse 21. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for us it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son, who the Son is, except the Father, and who the Father is, except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. 
And turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see these things that you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Let's pray. Father, Lord God, thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for your plan, your perfect plan. Which, which we come every week and we learn more and more about, that is revealed more and more to us, whether we understand it or not, doesn't mean that it's not true. Doesn't mean that that's not how you willed it from the foundation of the world. And so, God, I thank you for revealing to us your perfect sovereign plan for the world. And so, God, I ask you now to bless this time. I ask you to to hide me behind the cross, to empty me of myself, to, to push me out of the way, and to increase yourself through me so that every word that is spoken from this pulpit today would be you speaking to your people. God, I ask you that now in the holy, the righteous, and the most beautiful name of Christ. Amen. All right, so... So the context here is that that Jesus, in this chapter, in Luke 10, Jesus has sent out 72 to announce the the, the coming of his kingdom, the arrival of his kingdom in in, in the cities that are surrounding the area. So so he's given them power, he's given them authority, he's armed them with miracles, and, and, and they get a mixed reaction as they go out. They get a mixed reaction. There were some people... There was actually quite a few people who believed, but but a lot of people rejected the message. And a lot of these people who rejected were were were, were right people, right? They were they were people of power, people of influence, political and religious leaders, uh, and they gave Jesus a, a thumbs down, so to speak. And what was his reaction? Look back earlier in the chapter, verse thirteen. His reaction: Woe to you! Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and we act, or in, 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 in ashes. So woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. Those are two of the Judas, Jewish cities the apostles went to and were rejected, uh, and, and they rejected Jesus. He said, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, and those were two wicked Gentile cities, he said they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. And if you move on, he says, and you, Capernaum. Capernaum was also a Jewish city. They boasted a lot of religious leaders and a lot of knowledge and religious truth. So he says, will you be exalted to heaven? He said, you, will be, you shall be brought down to Hades. And then Jesus turned and said to the apostles, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now look at verse 21, our text today. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. So the rejection didn't bother him. Their rejection didn't bother him because he knew who he was. He knew he had his father's approval. So their approval isn't really that significant, right? And he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden, there it is, underlined it in your Bible, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So who missed it? The wise and the understanding. They missed it. Who got it? The children, the little children, right? Is there anything wrong with wisdom and understanding? Nothing, nothing at all. The Bible tells us to seek both of these things. We should seek both of these things. Uh, God loves the, uh, for us to be wise in his word, right? Uh, but the Jewish people who were the wisest people of the day, they completely, totally missed him. And the text says God himself, or God hid himself from them. That's what it says. He hid himself from them. All right, keep reading. Let's keep reading. Yes, Father, for such was... Such was your gracious will, your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and only one to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I'm going to love that. Yeah, it absolutely is. The only ones who know God are the ones Jesus chooses to reveal himself to. 
Verse 23, then turning to his disciples, he said, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. So I got two questions I'm going to ask this morning from the text. Number one, why do the wise and understanding miss God? Why do the wise and understanding miss God? Number two, how do we find certainty in what we believe about God? How do we find certainty in what to believe about God? So here's the first point. Write this down. Why do the wise and understanding miss God? Why do the wise and understanding miss God? And I'm going to give you four logical reasons for it. All right. Number one, here's your first one. Why the wise and understanding miss God? Our hearts are naturally blind. Our hearts are naturally blind. So, so the gospel of Luke, this gospel repeatedly presents people, men, in, in a natural state of blindness. All throughout the gospel, we've seen it. Jesus described his ministry in Luke 4 is what? Opening the eyes of the blind. All right? And it was more than just those who were, uh, who were physically blind. It was those who were also spiritually blind. That blindness was, a, was, a, was what? Being spiritually blind means what? Lost. Lost. Man. Y'all don't laugh at me. It means, yeah, you're right, it means to be lost, but it also, the, the, the inability to see the glory of God. Being spiritually blind means it's the inability to see the glory of God. It's a, and it's, it's a willful blindness. And it grows out of our heart, our sinful hearts. Paul gets way, way more in depth with this in Romans. And we don't have time to get in depth, but I'll kind of summarize it for you a little bit. Um, the condition, the attitude of the human heart, Paul says, since the fall, since the garden has been what? Rebellion. It's been rebellion. Our hearts have rejected the authority and the glory of God. And so our foolish hearts are darkened. And because they're darkened, Paul says they're blind to his goodness and his holiness and his power. Right? And that's, and that's all around us. His goodness, his holiness, his power is all around us. But we're blind to that. Right? In our natural state. We're blind to all of that. And what he means by rejecting the authority of God is that, that we don't want God to be in charge. We don't. We don't want God to be in charge of our lives. We don't want him to, uh, to, we'd rather rule ourselves. We want to make our own rules. We want to call our own shots. That's our natural, natural inclination to rule yourself, right? So, and what I mean by rejecting the glory of God is that, is that we don't see God's glory above all things. Now think about that for a minute. We seek our own glory. We seek our own pleasure. The word for glory in, in the Hebrew is translated, it means weight. It's the word kabod, and it, and it literally means weight. And, and to give something glory in our lives is to give it weight in our lives. So, so what we do in our natural state is, is we, give, we give other things the weight we should be given to God. Does that make sense? So as a result, what happens? Our hearts are darkened. Our hearts are darkened, and that means in our natural state, we can't even recognize the truth about God even when it's presented to us. Even when we hear it, we can't recognize it. And it's not that the evidence isn't there. It's not that it's not open to us. It's that we're not open to the evidence. We're not open to it. We can't see God because at our core, in our natural state, we don't really want to see God. We don't. And in order to really see God, Jesus says we have to be given new hearts. We've got to be given new hearts. Hearts that can see God's glory and feel his majesty. That's the only way we're going to be able to see and recognize God. So here's the point. Given, giving us that kind of sight is what? Grace. It's grace. God doesn't know it to us. Nobody in this room is owed anything by God. You know why? Because we've rejected him. We have rejected him. God doesn't owe us anything, including the revelation of himself. The idea that there's a God that anybody should be able to find at any point is just not true. There's not a God that anybody should just be able to find at any point in their life. That's not true. God's revelation to us is grace. It's a gift that we don't even deserve. 
And one of the things that, that kind of irks me it, when I talk to people is, is the sense that, that, that we're doing God a favor by believing in him. And I don't know if you've ever encountered that, but I've encountered it more times than I want to, that, that, that we're doing God a favor by believing him. Like he's sitting on his throne saying, oh, please, please, please believe in me. I really wish you would believe in me. Afraid not. It's not how he operates. From his perspective, from God's perspective, this is his world. He created it. Whether you believe in him or not, guess what? It's still his. It's still his world, and his self-esteem ain't going to be compromised. You ain't going to bother his self-esteem if you don't believe in him. If you don't believe in him, guess what? It's your loss, not his. Not his. So our hearts are naturally blind. Here's the second reason the wise understanding miss God. God will not be found through human achievement. Because if he could, that would contribute to human pride. God will not be found through human achievement. Because if he could, that would be contribute to, to human pride. So if the way to find God was through, through mastering science or mastering something of the sort than than the smart people in the world, the the, the most uh, intellectually superior people in the world would say, "Uh oh, we found God because we're smarter than everybody else. They'd say, we know God and truth best because we're smarter. We've went to the best schools. They would do what? Boast. They would boast. And and if the way to find God was through piety, then, then the religious people would say, we found God because we're morally superior than everybody else. They would boast about their goodness. They would boast about their goodness. But God says, you're not finding me through through anything that's going to allow you to boast. Not going to happen. Look at our text again. Jesus said, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. No one knows who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is saying people find you, only find you because you revealed yourself to them. They didn't find you, Father. You found them. When we talk about boast in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, obviously is the most famous verse that comes to mind. Paul said, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not work so that no one can boast. That's right. So God reveals himself in the way that, that, that goes really goes, goes to war, goes to battle with human pride. Because what is human pride? It's the source of all other sin. It really is. Every sin in this world is rooted in pride. Pride makes us feel independent. We say, I don't need God. I'm better off on my own. Call him my own shots. Mm-hmm. Pride leads to a sense of superiority, a sense of entitlement. And guess, guess what's in the middle? What's, what's in the middle of the word pride and in the middle of the word sin? Personal pronoun I. Exactly right. See, at every possible stage in life, God's salvation The salvation process is designed to humble us. It really is. If you look in Acts 4, they heal a guy in Acts 4. And they tell the people around that they healed the guy through the power of Jesus. And the religious leaders didn't like that. Right? They didn't like it. And so they they told them to quit. and, And they called them ignorant and uneducated people. They called the disciples ignorant and uneducated men. And Peter nailed him to the wall. He did. He said, look, I know you're smarter than us. But we saw, he said, I know you guys that got more degrees than, than a thermometer. But, but we saw Jesus come back from the dead. And Jesus coming back from the dead trumps your degrees. So, so if, you, if, you, if you have to choose in life, and this goes for a lot of college kids, because I know you, you deal with this a lot in college. If you got to choose to believe the guys with the, the degrees over the wall versus the man who came back from the dead, always go with the guy who was resurrected from the dead. Always. And I know a lot of Christians can be arrogant, but that point of view about being smart and not believing that God exists because you're so smart... 
That just proves that they did not get the gospel. They didn't understand it. So our hearts are naturally blind. God won't be found through human achievement. Here's the third one. God will be found by those with a childlike heart. That's what the text says. God will be found by those with a childlike heart. It says, you revealed them to children. So people with childlike hearts recognize the truth about God when it's presented to them. And what's a childlike heart look like? Anybody? We've actually talked about it several times in this gospel. It's, 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 it's humble. It's submissive. People with a childlike heart look at the evidence of Jesus and they see it as true. They believe it. Let's look at a couple examples of this from Scripture. Turn back to, to John chapter 7. John 7. Verses 3 to 5 in John 7 says, So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he sees, if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So his own brothers didn't believe in him. The other sons of Mary and Joseph didn't believe Jesus was the son of God. Look at verse 7. The world hates me because I testify about it that their work that its works are evil. So why didn't they see it? Why didn't they see it? Because their hearts were evil hearts. They're blind hearts. They're they're prideful hearts. All right, let's get down to verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So here it is. Here it is. Write this down in your notes. The desire to know God, the desire to know God and submissiveness to God precedes the knowledge of God. The desire to know God and submissiveness to God precedes knowledge of God. What if he never explains himself to you? What if he tells you to change your life? What if, what if he contradicts everything you believe about morality, about sex, about the afterlife? What if what God says contradicts everything that you believe? Are you willing to believe him? Guess what? If you're not, you'll never find him. You'll never find him. And Jeremiah 29, 13, 14 says, When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. Otherwise, God's hiding from you. God will hide himself from you. Psalms 145 says, The Lord is near unto all them that call upon him truly. You say, God, why don't you reveal yourself? Why don't you reveal yourself? Because you have a double-minded heart. That's why he doesn't reveal himself. You have a double-minded heart. Until you are surrendered, God's not showing you anything. Until you're surrendered, remember what I said, submission to God precedes knowledge of God. Submission of God precedes knowledge of God. All right, here's the fourth thing. God will be found by those who want to know him. God will be found by those who want to know him and not just use him for something else. Now, all of us pretty much know somebody in our lives like that. You only see them when they want something. You only hear from them. They only come around when they want something, when they need something from you. God reveals himself in a way that the only way you'll find him is if you want to know him for him. If you want to know him for him, not for what he can do for you. Otherwise, he obscures himself so you'll miss him. If all you want from God is God because of what God can do, you'll miss him. God reveals himself to the ones who want to know him for who he is. 
Amen? Amen. So those are four logical reasons that people who are wise and understanding miss God. All right? Our hearts are naturally blind. God will not be found through human achievement. God will be found by those who have a childlike heart. And God will not be found, or God will be found by those who want to know him and not use him for something else. All right, here's the next question that I want to ask. How do we find certainty in what to believe about God? How do we find certainty in what to believe about God? Verse 23 says, Then turning to his disciples, he said, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. So so you learn from the story of Jesus, right? When, when, When we see what the disciples saw about Jesus, we see God. We see the Father, right? Let's look back at the beginning of Luke. Turn to uh, Luke, um, Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one, first four verses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning here I w- were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me, as well as having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. All right? So we talk about this. We talked about it earlier. We talked about it every time that I preach. But uh, this is the review in the background. We know Theophilus. Is who Luke's writing the gospel to, right? And and and, he, and and the point is that Luke compiled this stuff from eyewitnesses. He had eyewitness evidence, eyewitness accounts. So for several years, what he did is he chased down details from those who witnessed these events, right? His goal was was that we have certainty, certainty concerning the things that we've been taught. So because. If what the Gospels say about Jesus is is true, then we can believe what's being revealed about God, right? Even if what they what they verify is absolutely mind blowing to us, right? If Jesus did the miracles that he did and he rose from the dead, then what he's telling us about God is absolutely true. Fair enough, right? So so again, when 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 you rise from the dead, you get to do what? You get to make the rules. When you rise from the dead, you get to make the rules. So the charges that are that are mostly made against uh, this account is that they're forgeries or they're legends, so to speak. Right? They're make-believe. They're fairy tales. They're legends. So let's summarize through it real quick. I'm going to hit down just real quick through this. Uh, the first one, the timing of these writings is too early for the Gospels to be a legend. The timing of the writings is too early for the Gospels to be a legend. The books of the Bible were written when? Around 30 years after Jesus' death. About 30 years. Some some of the main ones as early as 20 years after his death on the cross. Well, that's too early for a legend to spring up. It really is. Look at what Paul says about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, he tells them, he says, If you doubt this, what? If you doubt this, go ask others. If you doubt this, go ask others. Well, that ain't the kind of thing you say if you're writing a fairy tale. If you're writing a legend, you're not going to say that type of stuff. Yeah, we, 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 and others would say, yeah, but we only have copies and copies and copies. We don't have the originals. We don't have Paul's sweat and tears on the pages. Maybe somebody miscopied it. Well, fact is that that we, we what we do know is that in the late second century. Um, Tertullian, he talked about going back to Galatia and checking the writings. That's a fact, right? And they lined up with what Paul said. We know that that, that, that the central claims of Jesus, the big ones, the central claims were in existence among the, the earliest Christians. We know that. The earliest Christians believe Jesus died and rose again, right? And, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul, uh, which was written when? 
First Corinthians was written between 53 and 55 AD. He quotes a hymn the early church sang about the death, death and resurrection of Jesus in First Corinthians. All right, so that's the first thing. Second thing is that the content is far too counterproductive to be a legend. The content is far too counterproductive to be a legend. There's a ton of stuff in here that you wouldn't make up if you were writing a legend. If you were writing a fairy tale, there's a ton of stuff in here you wouldn't make up. For example, on nearly every page, the apostles turn out to be what? Morons. <laughs> they do. They turn out to, they're, they're, they're getting stuff wrong constantly. They reject little children. They're always, they're always arguing with each other about who the greatest is. They even got, we even got a story about Peter. Jesus calls Peter Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. And, and who was Peter? He would become a main leader of the church, right? Jesus calls him Satan. That's kind of, not the kind of story you're going to put in here if you're writing a legend, right? The gospel record, the gospels also record that Jesus is, uh, Family, I talked about this second ago. His family didn't believe who he was. They actually acu- accused him of losing his mind. Would you record that if it wasn't true? No. Luke also writes that women were the first to see Jesus after the resurrection. They sure, that's right, absolutely would not have written that. In those days, the testimony of women was not regarded as authoritative. It wasn't. So if you're making stuff up to get people to believe, that's not the kind of detail that you're going to make up. It's counterproductive. It goes against what you're trying to do. All right, here's the third thing. The, uh, the literally, the, the, uh, or the literary form of the Gospels is too detailed to be legend. The literary form of the Gospels is too detailed to be a legend. The Gospels give every indication of being eyewitness accounts. They give every indication of it. They have, they have details that don't fit into the big picture, right? For example, Luke 1, 11, the angel stood on the right side of the altar. Or Luke 8, 44, immediately her flow of blood ceased. Now, now where I'm going with that, and all the Gospels are like that, not just Luke. Mark 14 says in the middle of this, uh, a serious reflection on the, at the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark, uh, he includes a detail about the guy fleeting naked. You remember that. None of that has absolutely anything to do with the plot. So if you're making stuff up, these details don't matter, so why even include them? If they're not, you know what I mean? Unless they're true, that's that's really the whole idea. So you say, well, they were making stuff up to sound historical. They were making stuff up to sound historical. Well, the whole idea of historical fiction didn't come from, into literature until 700 years later. So you can't say that. You can't say that. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they're like, and I know none of them are like this. Of the gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is historical reportage or someone or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated, anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. So the point is, there's no credible reason to not believe Luke, what he was writing, the evidence that he was that he was finding from these eyewitness accounts. There's no reason not to believe him, unless you're just a cynic and, and, and a conspiracy theorist who likes to read tabloids. I know some of you read National Enquirer. All right, here's our last point. The message was 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 itself. It was too costly to be a legend. It was way too costly to be a legend. The message that Jesus was Lord and had risen from the dead didn't gain the apostles any popularity. He didn't give them any power or prestige. In fact, it cost them what? Absolutely. So, so we know that from the very beginning, those preaching the gospel were, were a highly persecuted group. Church history tells us that all the, apostle, all the apostles, with the exception of John, died an unnatural death. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, uh, the secular historian Josephus, says that James became the leader of the church and was stoned for his beliefs that Jesus was Lord, died, and rose again. 
which is pretty remarkable when you think about it and when you consider that James started out not believing Jesus was God. He started out skeptical of of his own brother, of who he actually was, and then he was stoned because of his belief in him. So something miraculous happened that changed his mind, that changed his heart. What would it take to convince you that your brother was the Lord from heaven? The fact that you saw him killed on a cross and then he rose from the dead and appeared to you. It's pretty miraculous. To say that they just made up the stories about Jesus means they were sitting around one day after Jesus had died fishing and Peter jumps up and says, I know, let's just tell everyone that he resurrected. We'll get the leaders uh, of this, of this we'll, get, we'll get to be the leaders of this new religion. Except let's teach everyone that Jesus' kingdom is not one that, that gives you power and riches on this earth. So when people, So when other people try to kill us, we won't fight back. And we'll give away most of our money to the poor. And then maybe if we're lucky, we can all get martyred through painful, humiliating deaths. Sounds like a logical plan, does it not? And all the disciples was like, that's a great idea. Let me go first. Let me go first. Let me be the first one. Now, point is, there's no reason to doubt that the Bible is what it claims to be. No reason at all. That, that it, there's no reason to doubt eyewitness testimony. Luke says, I'm a skeptic. Luke was a skeptic, so he researched it. He tested it. He picked it apart, and he verified it. Eventually, he said, I I let my life be taken from me in defense of it. So he was skeptical about the things that he was hearing, like so many people are, but he spent the time researching and investigating, and it became so clear to him that he was willing to lay down his life in defense of it. But we ask, why is it not clearer? Why is it not clearer to us? Why don't we have the originals? Why didn't God send us a DVD? Why are are skeptics able to ask questions and raise doubts? Why don't we have the the originals that Paul wrote? This this is the message saying, this is it. This This is it. Here's the answer. Hiddenness. Hiddenness. God's preserved his revelation in a way that, that, that those with proud, rebellious hearts miss it. And those with childlike hearts get it. Mm-hmm. The Bible gives us enough evidence for those whose hearts want to know God will. We have enough evidence in this book for those who want to know God to know him. You will. Luke 16 says they wouldn't believe it. They wouldn't believe. So the whole point, the Bible is sufficiently clear so that those with right hearts will believe and those without right hearts will never believe. So if you have a childlike, submissive heart, you'll figure it out. If you don't, you won't. It's simple as that. So here's the question. Do you, do you, do you have that kind of heart? Are you seeking God with all your heart? You that are that are believers in here, have you have you lost your childlike heart? A childlike heart toward God is something that you're supposed to never lose. It's not just a relevant thing at the beginning of salvation. It's something that's supposed to be with you throughout the course of your Christian walk. We think we grow up into adulthood, but we're not on a trajectory of adulthood. We're always a child. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And faith is accepting what? The unexplainable. It's accepting the unexplainable because of the undeniable. The life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely 100%, not just because of the claims of the Bible, but all of the sources outside of the Bible. It's absolutely undeniable. It's absolutely undeniable. So because God doesn't make himself more clearer to us, we still have undeniable facts that prove Jesus is who he said he was. Right? So I know people who reject God because they don't want to submit to what he says in his book about certain things. They don't want to believe God because believing God would mean having to submit 
to what he says about things. They, 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 they take offense to what he says about sexuality. They take offense to what he says about morality. They take offense to what he says about the way they talk, the way they live. They take offense to all of this thing because, get what? They want to make their own rules. They want to call their own shots. They, want, they don't want to accept that God is the creator of this world. But guess what? Like I said earlier, whether you believe him or not, it's still his world. So you can't say, well, I'm not going to choose God. I don't want to submit to what you say about this God of yours, so I want to call my own shots. I want to make my own rules. So therefore, I choose not to follow him. Guess what? That's fine. You don't have to follow him. But you're still going to be subjected to him. One day, you'll be face to face with him. You're going to stand face to face with the creator of the world. God, I didn't want to do it your way. I wanted to do it my way. What's he going to say? Away from me. I never knew you. This doctrine of, of hiddenness of Jesus explains to you why some people don't believe. No matter how clear the gospel seems to be made, no matter how clear you make it to them in your sharing, it shows you why prayer is important. Pray that other people will have what? A childlike heart. A childlike heart. Witness to them. Tell them about God. God uses our preaching and teaching and sharing to open their heart. But but don't forget that there's something that that but there that there is something only God can do through that whole process. There's only He's the only one that can. We can pray constantly. We can share the gospel. We can talk to Him about God. But God is the only one who can give them a childlike heart. God's the only one that can reveal Himself to them. That's what our text says. Only God can reveal who he is to the unbeliever. The most eloquent sermon, the most extravagant display of the gospel will not change a person's heart. The only thing is going to be softening of the heart by the Holy Spirit. And that comes through our prayers. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you. Thank you. That your plan, your sovereign plan, is so perfect. Sometimes we wish it were easier. Sometimes we wish we could look out the door and see you when we're going through tough times and we wanna we wanna just know that you're there. We wanna feel you, we wanna see you, but God, faith is what lets us know that you are there. Your word says that you'll never forsake us. You'll never leave us. So while we might not look out the window and see a 900-foot Jesus standing there giving us visual assurance, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. God, I pray right now that if there are any amongst us who have who don't have a knowledge of Jesus, who have not been revealed the true nature of who they are, that God, through the preaching of their gospel, of your gospel right now, that you would open the eyes of their heart, that you would reveal to them who they are, who you are. And God, I pray that, that, that we see souls saved today. I pray that and ask that now in the most beautiful name of Christ. Amen. All right, so quickly, why, why are you here? Why did God create you? To glorify him, to bring him glory. Number one, that's why you were created, to bring glory to God. God's serious about that glory. But we were serious about our sin. Because all the way back in the garden when the curse happened, we wanted that glory. We were glory robbers. We wanted it. We believed the serpent. 
And don't think any of you here who have ever talk, read, you know, know the story of Adam and Eve saying, if I was there, I wouldn't have done it. No, you'd have done it a lot quicker. It wouldn't have taken as long as it took Adam and Eve to fall. So they fail. We're cursed. We're born sinners. We're born enemies of God. We're at war with God. And the only way to be right with God is through his son, Jesus. We can't live a perfect, sinless life, and perfection is what he requires. Perfection is what he has deemed necessary to be to enter into heaven, to be right with him, because he can't look it up on anything imperfect. And Jesus was the only one that ever lived that life, and because Jesus lived that life, he was able to be and approved to be the sacrifice for us. To take on the sin of every person that would ever believe in him. And that's exactly what he did. He took on the sin of every man, woman, and child that would ever believe in him. He took on the wrath of God. God turned his back on Jesus. Because he became sin. The one who knew no sin became sin. So that we would know the righteousness of God. We don't deserve God's forgiveness. We don't deserve anything but death and separation from him for all of eternity. Because we're sinners. And the, and the, and the wages of sin is what? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's it. So believe, who God, believe what God says about his son. That he went to the cross, that he took on the punishment and the pain of, the, of your sin. That he was buried. And God approved of that sacrifice, so he rose him the third day. So that we would serve a living, breathing God. Repent of your sin. Believe, believe in Christ. And the Bible says that God will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will impute the righteousness of Christ unto you. Meaning that when he looks down upon you, he doesn't see a sinner anymore, but he sees his son Jesus. He looks at you as though you are his son. So when you enter heaven as a believer, you don't enter under your own name. You don't enter under the name Evan Bowers, Marty Bowers. You don't enter under the name of Sadie or Dan. You enter under the name of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And because you've heard the gospel, you're commanded to respond to the gospel. You were commanded to repent and believe. It's not an invitation. It's a command. The command is repent and believe. Repent and believe. So you're going to respond to it. You're either going to reject it. You're either going to reject it or you're going to submit to it. So we are going to have a time of invitation, but as I said, it's not an invitation, it's a command. And if you've never submitted to Jesus in your life, if you've never turned from your life of sin and received Christ in your life as your Lord and Savior, I would ask you to take that time now and not walk out of this building today without doing it. Take that time now. Walk down here during this time. And let me tell you something. Walking this aisle is not magical. Walking this aisle will not save you. God will save you in your seat just as much as he'll save you up front. But the reason we ask you to walk is so that we can rejoice in what the Holy Spirit has done here today. That's why we want you to walk up front, so that we can rejoice in the power of God. All right, so we can come up. You, we can have a conversation about salvation. We can have a conversation about church membership. If you if you feel like you're saved and you never followed through with believers' baptism, we can talk about that. Or if you want to come to the altar and pray, you want me to pray with you, Marty, Coach. If you want any of us to to, to pray with you, you can. We can do that as well. But however the Holy Spirit is leading you now, I would ask you to respond. All right, let's all stand.